criminal defense attorney, Neil Rockheim. Welcome to Killer Cross-Examination. The Queen's Gambit. Queen's Gambit. Man, is that a popular television show on Netflix. It's extremely popular, and it somehow made chess, the game of chess, sexy and interesting and, um, and attractive. But if, if you've all seen that, the, that, tele, that, that movie, Training Day, starring Denzel Washington, where he actually gets into his, his car um, and he's got Ethan Hawke in the car with him. And he goes, this is, this is chess, not checkers. And that, that line was designed to, to convey the message that the game of chess is intricate and complex and involved and involves seeing moves and, and envisioning pieces moving on a board and a strategy, not just taking pieces and hopping them around like checkers, but chess, which involves seeing all different angles and, and, and approaches and defenses and, 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 and maneuvers. And the Queen's Gambit, that TV show, is about chess. Well, Bobby Fischer, who's one of the, the most famous chess players of all time, once actually said that, that life is, chess is, is, is life. Life is like a game of chess. And so is litigation. So is criminal defense. So are criminal defense cases. So is taking a client from the very beginning of a case and, and working the case with a strategy like chess, like the Queen's Gambit, and working it all the way through to the end and seeing and anticipating what your opponent's going to do and how they're going to react and how you can, can if you will, Flood the zone. How you can, how you can get your message out and get your message across, and in so doing, anticipate what your opponent's going to do, and then you can plan strategies based on that. We recently won a case, a very high-profile case, in which we employed a, a chess-like strategy in filing motions in developing and getting our theory out, flooding the zone, if you will, in the courtroom and in, in, in the, the public domain. And we did that with motions, motions in limine, motions challenging the admission of evidence with killer cross-examination during a Franks hearing. So let me take you back to July 3rd. July 3rd of 2019, in which um, our client, and his fiance are are driving. They're on a suburban road, approaching an intersection, and they have a green light. And they're following traffic as we've all done before. And he's driving along and following the traffic, and the car in front of him, uh, just like the car before it, goes through a green light. And you, they have the right of way, and they make it through a green light. And then he proceeds to go through the green light. Just as the car before him and the car before it and the car before it and the car before it had done. All with the flow of traffic. Then out of nowhere, suddenly, a sedan happens to make a very sharp, unexpected, unanticipated 
unforeseeable left-hand turn into oncoming traffic. It was a terrible collision. And in the collision, in the, the aftermath of the collision, is that there were two children in that car. One child ends up dying, a beautiful young boy. And the police begin to investigate the case. And as they're investigating the case, they could tell that, that our client is extremely concerned. He's over at the, the side of the sedan. He's helping remove the other child from the car. They're there tending to the, the, the child who's still alive. The driver of the other vehicle, the one that made the, the left-hand turn into oncoming traffic, he's frantically looking for his cell phone. The boy dies. And the police conduct an investigation, and the officers are at very close range. They're very close to our client. They're very close to the driver of, of, of the vehicle. They're very close to the driver of, of my, my client and the driver of his car. Close enough that they're able to see and hear and, and detect whether he smells of anything, whether he has any signs of intoxication, whether he has any balance, gait, um, speech, or other problems, whether he exhibits any physical signs of intoxication. He doesn't, and the officers make note of that. But they do go about asking him, ultimately, they, 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 they do arrest him eventually. And after his arrest, the police decide to seek a search warrant. And the affidavit and written by the, the officer that arrested him formed the centerpiece for our Queen's Gambit, if you will. It formed a centerpiece for us when we took over the case. We were the third law firm in the case, the third firm to take over, the third lawyer, if you will. I'm the third lawyer, but my team and I were the third firm to have taken on this case. And the history was astounding and disappointing and shocking. Our client was originally charged with operating while intoxicated. He had a small amount, according to this the, the blood draw that was obtained pursuant to a search warrant. He had a small amount of, of marijuana in his blood. As a medical marijuana patient, he's allowed to have marijuana in his system. So long as it doesn't impair or intoxicate him. So, of course, we look to the affidavit. We want to see what the evidence is. Somewhere along the way, the, the, during the police investigation, they actually investigate the actual traffic accident. And the driver who was driving the vehicle that contained the two children, police do a very detailed, thorough investigation. The driver at first says that he had a green light. Well, they can prove that that's not true. The other drivers can, can prove that. The apparent from the scene and from the physical evidence that he didn't have a green light at all. Turns out that he had either a red light or, or a blinking yellow. Either way, he didn't have the right of way. The police, after their very detailed investigation, reach a conclusion. They conclude that the driver, who was the father of the children in that car, was at fault in the accident. They write it right in their report. They write that he was at fault. 
And then they charge him with a crime in Michigan called moving violation causing death, which is like a homicide type crime. Which basically means that he drove a vehicle, committed a moving violation, and caused the death, in this case, of the child in his car. Our client is charged with operating while intoxicated, even though there's not a single bit of evidence that he was intoxicated. And inexplicably, in the middle of the case, sometime around January or so, our client's charges changed. Even though he was deemed to be not at fault in the accident, and even though there's no witness who says he was at fault, and no evidence that shows he was at fault, and no accident reconstruction expert who says that he was at fault, he too gets charged with moving violation causing death. Two drivers, one who was making a left turn, the other who was going straight. This one, our client has the green light. This one turns against the light. And both now end up being charged with moving violation causing death. As we examine the evidence in the case, we're perplexed. How can we communicate? How is this possible? How is this fair? How is this just that our client, who was deemed to be not at fault in the accident, how can we convince the judge? How do we get through to the judge? How do we get through? How do we flood the zone, if you will? How do we tell our story in a way that gets the judge to see that this prosecution of our client the accusation that he was somehow at fault, but the police had deemed him to not have been at fault. How do we get that message out enough that it resonates and it takes over the case? We begin to file motion after motion after motion. And to us, this is like chess, not checkers. This is us envisioning each time we prepare and draft and file a motion, how is the, are we going to, as we file the motion, argue the motion, how are we going to communicate? How are we going to move these pieces, our rooks and our bishops and our pawns, so to speak, so that we put ourselves in the position like the Queen's Gambit, so that we can ultimately get our message out, so that the other side is trapped. So the prosecution who will not let go of this case, the prosecution that has brought this unjust, unfair prosecution, who is accusing a person who is deemed by the police to be not at fault, but they're accusing him of being at fault and causing the accident. How do we get this message through? This is what some trial lawyers, what they miss. This is what some proponents of cross-examination not the way I cross-examine, but others, what they miss. They don't have a strategy. They just want to go in and bludgeon. They just want to take a butcher cleaver as opposed to a scalpel. They're playing checkers. And some of them not even playing checkers well. So we see and read this affidavit in support of a search warrant. Now, why has this become important? Because somewhere along the way, inexplicably and with no explanation, there isn't one that we can think of, and there wasn't one offered, the case against the driver who was at fault, the father of, of the deceased child, the deceased of the, of, of the victim. The case against him is dropped. 
So now, now not only do you have two people charged with the same crime, but you had our client whose charges were increased. The other person who was deemed to be at fault, his case dropped. So you have the person now left totally on an island, totally exposed, totally uh, left standing alone, sort of holding the bag, so to speak, accused of, 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 of causing the death of this child when the police had said that he was not the cause of the accident. How can this be? It's certainly not just, it's certainly not fair. So motion after motion, motions for bill of particulars, motion to exclude this piece of evidence, motions to exclude that piece of evidence, motion to, to dismiss for on the basis of causation and the lack of, be, of proof of causation. And each and every motion we're filing is another move on our part, a part of a strategy that ultimately culminates in a Franks motion. Franks versus Delaware is a motion, is a is a case, a Supreme Court case that says that you have the right to challenge whether an affidavit in support of a search warrant lacked probable cause. The Fourth Amendment requires that all search warrants have to it can only be issued upon a finding of probable cause, and you have to look at the affidavit. And the affidavit in this case contained the affidavit in this case was was misleading. It, it, it had material omissions. It omitted critical and important evidence. And when you read it, it mischaracterized the evidence at the scene. The way the affidavit in this case read was it read like the police got to the scene. Our client said he went through a green light, even though there was no, uh, nobody knew that the police had um, conducted some investigation. Determined he was the driver, weren't sure whether he'd gone through a green light or not. That they had given him a preliminary breath test in which he had a legal amount of alcohol in his system. He had 0.05 of bodily alcohol content. And they said that they were investigating him. They had reason to believe that he was intoxicated. Except a blood test revealed that our client had no alcohol in his system. And more importantly, the officers themselves had communicated to one another that we were able to overhear by doing our investigation, by investigating the case, the officers had communicated to one another that they saw no evidence of intoxication, that he looked sober, that he acted sober, that they see no signs of him being drunk. So when we read the police report and we read the actual, the, 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 read the police report, and then we actually read our transcripts from the, the police squad car and, and if you will, body cams, the body cam equivalent, and we're comparing what is said between the officers when they're talking to themselves, among themselves, and what they write in the police report, and then we compare it to the affidavit, it appeared that they were describing two different cases. Between themselves, the officers said that it appeared that our client had a, our client said he had a green light. In the affidavit, they also write, that they, they omitted that the other driver also said he had a green light, which later proved to be untrue. They also put in, when they talked among themselves, 
They said that based upon their, clearly they were all experienced, that they had observed that our client did not present to be under the influence, does not appear to be under the influence. And that none of the officers observed any indications that he was under the influence. But when you read the affidavit, they say that they have reason to believe that he was under the influence. The officer who signed the affidavit, he wrote in a report that he did not, our client did not have any balance issues, did not smell of alcohol, was not slurring his words, did not exhibit any problems with his eyes, did not have a flushed face, that he didn't have any balance issues. And not one of the officers, despite including this one, despite being trained in the administration of field sobriety tests, asked our client to take field sobriety tests, you know, like the eye test or the one leg stand or the walk and turn, the sort of things you would do if you believe that somebody was under the influence of alcohol. But in this affidavit, the officers wrote that they had reason to believe that he was under the influence. Two different cases. So how do we get that across? Because we realize as part of our chess-like strategy that if we can attack the blood draw, and we can, through cross-examination, at a frank, what's called a Frank's hearing, if we can actually, at, during cross-examination, we can show that they've charged the person who was deemed not at fault, that the evidence that they put in their police report and the evidence that was shared between the officers was contradicted in an affidavit for the express purpose of getting a blood draw, when they would never have been able to get one on their own. We realize that what we can do is we can, we, can, we can start to raise real doubts, not just about the case, but about the, whether the entire case, the investigation and the, the, the attempts to uncover evidence and the prosecution were fair and just. And so what we did is we put our, our strategy forward. Again, this is chess, not checkers. We actually, for demonstrative purposes, we made up a sample of what the affidavit would look like if the the police officers had put all of the information in and not just not just the stuff that aided their effort to get a search warrant, but had they put all of the information in. And when you read that, we did that to show the judge what it would have looked like had the uh, uh, officers given all of the information, good and bad, to the magistrate, and it painted an entirely different picture. It painted a, a, a picture of if a magistrate had gotten this, that no magistrate, no sane magistrate, no neutral and detached magistrate would have ever signed this. And so it contributed to our argument about how unfair this was. And what it did was it positioned the prosecutor to have to defend it. It, it positioned like the Queen's Gambit, like a moving chess, it positioned the prosecutor to have to defend not just the fact that our client was charged, but the prosecutor now had to defend the fact that the affidavit can contain what are called material omissions and misleading information and misled the magistrate. And then the magistrate in her courtroom was misled by the absence of information, by the omission of critical information. And it made the prosecutor have to defend that which in a way was indefensible. And then at the end of it, after the judge reached her opinion that the evidence, that the search warrant 
um, uh, needed to be suppressed and the evidence seized pursuant to the search warrant needed to be suppressed, the, you could see that the judge was struggling. And she was sharing information and sharing thoughts and finally put to the prosecutor a question. Going, I don't understand. I've been struggling with this. How is it that the person who was deemed to be not at fault is charged with being at fault in the accident? And the person who was deemed to be um, um, not at fault is. In other words, the person who was deemed to be at fault had his case dismissed, but the person who was deemed to be not at fault was on trial as the cause. And the judge asked that question. And in part, the judge asked that question because our strategy of, of the motions and our strategy of being able to cross-examine and challenge the search warrant frame the issue that this entire investigation, that the recovery of evidence, that the sworn statement to magistrate, that the discovery of the evidence, the discovery of the blood evidence, that all of it was done in a way that was unfair and unjust. It's why this is checkers and not chess. Each and every time we appeared in court, we began to make our arguments, present our case, remind the judge that the person who was not at fault is being blamed and the person who was at fault has had his case dismissed. Motion after motion after motion. Positioning the prosecutor to be on the defensive, to always have to explain over and over and over, 13, 14, 15 times, putting the prosecutor in the defensive posture of having to defend this abomination of an investigation and this abomination of a charge. To the point that when we finally culminated in this Frank's motion, and we created this affidavit, this affidavit that if the, the officers had been totally candid and honest with the magistrate what the case would have looked like. The judge herself knew that no magistrate would have and could have signed an affidavit in support of a search warrant or could have signed a search warrant for blood evidence under these facts. Sure, under the facts as the, the officers had put them, but not under a complete rendition of the facts. Not when being fair, not when being candid not when including all of it. They made out a case that our client appeared to be intoxicated, but it was one-eighth of the story. When the seven-eighths of the rest of the story, the rest of the story was that the evidence contradicted that. In fact, all the officers in the moment, spontaneously, without preparation, without deliberation, just in, in the heat of the moment, all shared that our client appeared to be sober, not intoxicated. So it got the judge thinking. And she was questioning, how is this fair? Can you, and put to the prosecutor, can you explain how it is that he's charged? Can you explain that to me? And the prosecutor at one point said, I didn't charge the case. Which in a way is sort of like a tell. Like, don't ask me. And because we were constantly putting the prosecution on the defensive with the strategy of flooding the zone, of prep 
of peppering the record and peppering and reminding and peppering and reminding and reminding that our client was being unfairly and unjustly prosecuted and being accused of, we were able, we filed one last round of motions in the case because we knew that the judge was thinking. She could sense the palpable. You could feel how she, with her comments, you could feel and sense that she, she could tell that there was something unfair and unjust that was actually taking place. And what she ultimately, we ultimately filed the motion and the legal challenge arguing that the Michigan Constitution restrains the executive branch from acting in a way that is unjust and unfair. And that, sure, while prosecutors have discretion to charge cases, they can't do it unfairly, and they can't do it unjustly. And if they do it unfairly and unjustly, then they're in violation of the Michigan Constitution. And we filed that motion, which was really the culmination of this entire legal strategy. It was the, the final move before, as you move the piece and let go and you look up and you realize that you have your opponent. You have a, a check name. And sure, the prosecutor tried to play his way out of that position, but to no avail. He had been defending the indefensible for months on end. He had been attempting to explain, to defend, to articulate reasons for why the case was should proceed. But it wasn't fair, and it wasn't just. And the, the judge in the end issued an opinion in which she said that she found the prosecution of our client Given the circumstances, given the fact that he was deemed to be not at fault, given the facts and circumstances of the case, that while it was a tragedy, and there was a tragic loss of life, that the executive branch, of which the prosecutor is a member, cannot act unfairly and unjustly. And by continuing with the prosecution, the dismissal of the case against the driver deemed at fault, but the continued prosecution of the driver deemed not at fault, that that was both unfair and unjust. And she ordered the case dismissed. Our client cried that day, real tears. For over a year, he had been living with the, the agony, the anxiety, the trauma of having participated in an accident that resulted in the loss of a life, a young life at that. That alone can cripple somebody. But the legal system didn't appear to be working for him. The legal system had invested too much power in the prosecutor's office. It gave the prosecutors too much power to charge and then up the charge and then to dismiss against 
The other driver invested in the prosecutor too much power. There had to be, we believed, a restraint on the prosecutor's power. And so, in the end, our client who had been laboring under the stress and the anxiety, the heaviness of, of being involved in that case and that accident and being accused and then watching the other driver also be accused and watching his charges increase and then watching the, the other driver's charges be inexplicably and without explanation dismissed, our client began to feel as though the legal system would fail him. And the legal system is the great equalizer. It's supposed to remove passion and prejudice from prosecution and from decisions about whether somebody should be prosecuted and strictly go on what's fair and just. And our strategy in the end, the one that we employed, ultimately convinced the judge that the prosecution of our client was unfair and just, unjust and the case was dismissed. The Queen's Gambit is an incredibly powerful show. I'm told that there is an unavailability of chess sets throughout in toy stores or on internet marketplaces. I don't know if that's true or not. But I can tell you, as Bobby Fischer said, that life is like chess and chess is like life and that chess is life. Chess is life. In courtrooms, we play chess. I don't mean to trivialize what we do, but we try to think ahead. When I ask a question on cross-examination, I'm trying to think of what the witness's answers could be. I run through all the range of the potential answers and then think of what my responses could be and think of all the ways that we could get tripped up and how that could hurt or help our case. And so by the time that we put the questions to the witness, we have anticipated the answers. We're playing chess. And we enter into a case, the lawyers who know what they're doing, they develop a strategy. And that strategy is a strategy like chess. And that chess-like strategy has the ability to save lives and has the ability to be the great equalizer, to make the legal system work, to get judges and juries to see what's fair, and to get judges and juries to see what is just. And that's what we did here. This is Neil Rockine. Thank you for once again listening to another episode of Killer Cross-Examination. Please subscribe, hit like, um, uh, share. These messages are important. We think they're important. And we want the word to spread that there is fairness and justice that can be had in the legal system. You just have to have a strategy on how to get there. Killer, killer cross examination. A podcast.
nationally renowned criminal defense attorney, Neil Rockheim.